0: I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and we are here once again in our quarantine bunkers. I am here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, guys. I just realized because there's no order in the world anymore, I introduced you guys in a totally different way than I usually do. (laughs) I I was Uh, like, I was like, oh, I'm
4: first. Everything's (laughs) topsy-turvy right now.
0: (laughs) All things have (laughs) changed. Um, Well, we're still... At home, there are still no movie theaters open. Um, as far as we know, Emmy season is still happening, um, but uh, the whole world is on pause, and we're going to continue doing the show. We actually have some exciting ideas of things coming up of people we want to talk to. Um, this episode alone, we're going to be talking to uh, Karina Longworth, the host of You Must Remember This, who did a fascinating mini-episode on the 1918 flu pandemic. And uh, We're also talking to David Ehrlich, a writer at IndieWire, who wrote an impassioned um, piece about why he doesn't think the movie uh, exhibition industry is going to collapse. So there remains a lot to talk about, um, and we're going to catch up with each other. But first, before we get into what our quarantine viewing is, has been. Um, I want to tease uh, what we're going to be doing for the next four weeks, kind of a, a group idea. And then Joanna had the brilliant idea to open it up to the crowd. Um, we're going to go through four weeks of what I, at least, am calling the Little Gold Men Essentials. We're going to go watch some classic movies that are crucial for understanding either the Oscars or the movie industry, the entertainment industry, or otherwise are uh, movies we want to highlight or maybe we haven't seen that we want to catch up on. Um, the Academy very helpfully tweeted a list of all of the best picture winners that are available to stream right now. So we sort of use that as a jumping off point. And we're going to open it up to you guys. We're going to have a Twitter poll uh, this week for the movie that we should start with next week. And we have got four options. We have two Best Picture winners, From Here to Eternity and Midnight Cowboy. And then there's the ultimate Hollywood movie, Sunset Boulevard. And then throwing in my personal wild card is uh, Gangs of New York, which is on HBO and is kind of a classic. Uh, It was going to be the Best Picture winner until suddenly it wasn't Example. So we'll have that up on Twitter. You can pick which one you want us to watch, and then we'll go from there. I- I'm excited about this, guys. Mike, this was your idea to do a rewatch series, so uh, thank you for bringing it to us.
4: Yeah, I- I'm I'm very excited to rewatch even the ones that I've rewatched recently. But, like, you can't go wrong watching all all of these movies a lot. Although I don't know that I've seen Gangs of New York since it came out, actually. So that would be fun if that were Me neither.
0: Oh, I- I've never seen Midnight Cowboy, and, uh, Joanne, I think you haven't either. So we have some catching up to do.
5: Yeah, Midnight Cowboy is definitely on my shame list of movies that I haven't seen, so I would love uh, an excuse to watch it. And uh, yeah, if um, I can't remember if you said it, Katie, but we are at Little Gold Men on Twitter, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, that's... That's where you're going to want to look for the poll. And I think all of us will probably uh, retweet it and stuff like that. So we would love to get your opinion about what we should be watching. And hopefully you'll watch along with us. And we can discuss and probably for the most part, we'll be like, Oh, my God, this amazing classic. But sometime we'll be like this. This is the best picture. winner." Okay,
0: <laughs> the Oscars Sometimes are never wrong. Happens. Joanna. They're never wrong. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, Richard, do you want to put your thumb on the scale for anything?
1: Well, I was just going to say that Midnight Cowboy features friend of Vanity Fair Bob Balaban like you'll never see him before. You've never seen him before and and won't. Uh, again, I don't think. Um, see, I
0: didn't know that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I'm not going to say what, that, what I mean by that, but you'll see when you watch the movie. Um, and it's a fascinating example of watching something that has influenced so many movies since it came out. But you're watching it in retrospect and you're like, oh, this feels kinda like played out. You know, this feels very familiar. And it's like, right, because it invented <laughs> all this stuff. So <laughs> yeah. or a lot of this stuff. So it's um that that's I think that's a really interesting one to talk about. But they're all good choices. So I'm I'm excited no matter what wins.
5: All right. We are in your hands. Um can I make another can I make another shameful confession? I've never seen From Here to Eternity and I don't know why because that's like the kind of movie that I that I just usually eat up so I uh, you know there's I'm going to I'm going to fill in some gaps in my knowledge this little series and I'm really excited for that.
4: I think I've only seen it once but it's so good. That's that's yeah, another one I would I would love an excuse to to rewatch that. But they're all they're all great, all very good.
0: Yeah, that's something I caught up on maybe on TCM for some reason a couple years ago, and like definitely, I, I think Frank Sinatra's acting career is something that's a little hard to grasp if you haven't like caught up with some very specific movies, and you watch that movie, you're like, oh, I kind of get it. Like this is this is telling me a lot. So anyway, a lot. Oh yeah, he's
4: awesome in it. He's amazing. Yeah.
0: Wow, from here to eternity won eight Oscars, including one wow. for uh, Frank Sinatra and Donna Reed in the uh, as best supporting actress. Anyway. Uh, you guys want to talk about a bunch of uh, non-Oscar-worthy stuff that we've been watching since we've been holed up in quarantine. Maybe some Oscar-worthy stuff, but also all the things that are helping us get through it. Um, Mike, I wanted to start with you. Um, you have been kind of a big cheerleader for Curb Your Enthusiasm, which uh, ended its season. Um, I think everyone has had the thought, what would Larry David do with a season about quarantine and not wanting to shake hands with anybody? And maybe we can hope for that. Um, but but how was Curb Your Enthusiasm as something to watch as the world collapsed?
4: Yeah, I mean, there was a Purell, um Angle to the finale And in fact uh, throughout the whole season You know Larry is a bit of a germaphobe A bit of a misanthrope And weirdly Someone that it's a lot of fun to spend time With Larry David um, at, At this time at least I thought so And this this season was There were ups and downs But the the premiere was incredible The finale was really, really good There's another, at least one other Top-notch, excellent uh, episode In the middle there And really, like, if you just If you're looking for something to do If you've watched all of Schitt's Creek now And are looking for some other (laughs) kind of way To pass the time around people Who are sort of horrible and sort of great uh, There's ten full seasons now There's a hundred episodes Episodes of uh, of Curb Your Enthusiasm out there, wow, and uh, and there's just like that's a lot of time to spend with this incredible character. I mean, I really was by the end of it, I was just like, this show is sublime. Like it was, and he's so good. One of the things that he does, because a lot of you know, they're famous for improving the scenes uh, themselves. But each scene is very meticulously constructed and the season is constru- meticulously constructed. And so in that, in that finale, he's tying up threads, not only from that ish episode, everybody knows, and you know this from Seinfeld, how good Larry David is at tying up threads, you know, setting them in motion and then putting them together at the end. But he's tying them up from the whole season. And so I really just can't, uh, can't recommend it enough. Even the not so great episodes are like really good. But it's very misanthropic. So I feel like, you know, you have to kind of be willing to enjoy uh, him being. And and sometimes he goes, I would say the biggest weakness is sometimes he gets a little old man with the PC stuff. I enjoy when he's tweaking the PC things. But then there's a few where you're just like, all right, dude, like it's a little creepy and weird. But, you know, (laughs) I I think it's worth uh, hanging in for that stuff.
0: Is there something about the like kind of. Inherent pettiness of the stuff that Kerb addresses and the stuff that Larry David gets upset about, where you're like, "Oh yeah, this is a dispatch from a world where these things happened." And I mean, I guess we're we're not above our petty problems still, and maybe that's proof that we we will, that will always be part of the human condition.
4: Yeah, right. I mean, I think that that's that is part of the fun of it. And most escapist things really do elevate the kind of minutia, right? Like we always joke about um, *Downton Abbey*. It's just like oh you know ten minutes can be dedicated to this plot on the trying to murder the king and then you know ninety minutes can be based on which cutlery belongs like next to your plate
3: <laughs> and
4: um and and Larry David is just the master of that and it's so it just becomes so enjoyable. I, early on watching it, I found it like really cringy, and then once you settle into it, it's just you can feel it coming. Um, you know, as soon as the situation starts, you just go, oh my God, here we go. He's going to like not be able to let go of something. He's going to start a huge argument. Somebody's going to tell him to get the fuck out of here, you know, and he will will go. And it's just like the character becomes increasingly fascinating over time. And of course, you know, horribly, you find yourself relating to a, a fair number of the little petty things that anyone else would just ignore or swallow and that he has to make a thing out of every single time.
0: Mike, what else has been keeping you sane indoors? Uh,
4: I enjoyed watching The Outsider on HBO, uh, also on HBO. I, I thought that, like a lot of Stephen King things, uh, the setup is better than the, than the eventual payoff. The last two episodes are, you know, it, it, it flips over into a sort of bad version of It or something. Um, hmm. But early on, it's really, really awesome. I, I could watch Ben Mendelsohn do anything, and Cynthia Rivo is is really incredible as this sort of very spectrum-y, um, kind of savant, quasi-supernaturalistic um, detective. Jason Bateman's really good in it, a lot of really good... Patty Considine, uh, a lot of really good performances, and really well shot, really well produced. I know you guys have talked about it a lot, but I, I, I found it fun, and, and I didn't mind the end of it. I just didn't think the end was as, as like, sort of excellent as the stuff before... And then last night I watched the um, Hunter's premiere uh, or pilot, all 90 minutes of it, which was fun, you know, interesting. I mean, I actually don't find Nazi stuff uh, very escapist right now. I have been watching a fair amount of – we watched Downfall the other night, speaking of Nazis. And finally just had to turn it off. But, like (laughs) – He's There's so something very interesting. Inspired by people being
0: uh, locked inside, like uh, you feel like Hitler in his bunker in, in your quarantine.
4: Yeah, and you know what else was inspiring? Watching a fascist uh, fail and be distro- <laughs> be toppled. However, it's a little stressful, you know what I mean? Like it's not, unfortunately, uh, we're not in a mood where you can feel triumphal, triumphalist about those kinds of stories. You feel almost like complicit in those stories right now. Uh, horribly, so I don't know that I'm going to stick with Hunters to be perfectly honest, but uh, but it's certainly like a well done kind of snazzy, entertaining um, if if very very long uh, pilot.
0: Yeah, I watched the first—I watched the very, very long uh, pilot of Hunters a few weeks ago, and I felt so kind of, like, exhausted by having been in it that I didn't really want to watch more of it and, like, actively angry that it was 90 minutes long. Um, as I was saying before we recorded, maybe there's room for that now because no one can leave the house. But it is funny how, like, I have found the plot against America a good kind of escapism, but Hunters does not feel like something I want to live in. There's, like, um, I don't know, there's something about a tone or, like, the way it depicts humans that some of it feels like good— way to escape the current moment and some of it doesn't
1: yeah i actually finished the whole season of hunters uh because i have nothing <laughs> but time to watch things because <laughs> I'd, re- I'd seen the first i think four to review it um and i think you guys would be fine not uh, watching past the pilot which i think is the best episode by a lot
0: <laughs> Ooh, interesting
1: <laughs> yeah
4: interesting yeah that kind of got that feeling
5: Well, I I just want to say really quickly, Mike, that I agree. I I think Richard and I, we did um, the last season of Still Watching about uh, The Outsider, the podcast that we do about television. And I think we agreed that, I don't know, the first seven to eight episodes, which, uh, you know... Offered so much rich material, and then it became like a little too literally Stephen King at the end. Um, but that's sort of where it was always heading. Uh, once I read the like description of the book on Wikipedia, I was like, "Oh no, we're gonna end up in caves with a
4: literal monster." Okay,
5: <laughs> um, so you know <laughs> that's oh spoiler for the outsider. That's like that's, just
4: <laughs> even the production design of the cave. By the time you're in the cave, you're just like, okay. You know, it's just like, yeah. you can't, it's very, it would be very, very expensive to make the cave look as sort of, you know, realistic and cool and good as the scenes in people's houses that were supposed to be in Georgia. But somehow, of course, everything looks like Maine, no matter what, uh, <laughs> if, if, if Stephen King is doing the right dialogue. But yeah, it's just, but what, it reminded me of like that original it um, that, that was back in the, whenever that was, oh, 80s the, or the 90s. Tim, the
5: Tim Curry it? The Tim Curry. Yeah. Age. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, Mike and I are, are pretty much of the generation that was scarred forever by Tim Curry and clown makeup. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's interesting. And then uh, my last question, Mike, what do you make of sort of the, in the end, it seemed like they were opening, leaving the door open for a possible second season. Would you want a second season of The Outsider, even though they're out of book material?
4: Yeah, totally. No, yes, I would. Okay. Um, okay. Cool. And uh, I thought, well, and and isn't it a, a recurring character, the character that Cynthia Riva plays, Holly Gibney? Does she recur in Stephen King's uh, books, or because there was another adaptation where someone else played played the character, right? Somewhere.
5: Yeah, she, she's in these Mister Mercedes novels that um, they actually did. Yeah, a TV series of Elsewhere on one of the streamers that I can't remember right now. Um, but so they wouldn't be doing those books necessarily because uh, especially because Ben Mendelssohn's character is in it but I think I feel like they were setting themselves up to do an optional sort of X-Files but with Cynthia Revo and Ben Mendelssohn in the future possibly uh, which is yeah maybe interesting.
4: I you know I'm a fan of that type of thinking you know I, I'm the I, I think like Homeland got much better when they um, gave up on trying to be serious and just turned it into like a fun goofy spy thing with Claire Danes and and uh, Mandy Patinkin. So I could imagine them going to... Holly's supposed to be from Chicago, right? Like, the, let's get, let's go take this show to Chicago and have Ben Mendelsohn be the fish out of water. Like, I don't know. I feel like uh, I would watch it. I'd at least check it out. Yeah, for sure. What do you think? Are you opposed to it?
5: Um... I get wary about things that are based on books uh, extending past the book that they've adapted, if that makes sense. Like Homeland's a little different.
4: What could ever uh, uh, have given you a feeling that that could go wrong, Joanna? <laughs> I
5: don't. I don't know. Nothing. Nothing recently <laughs> on on major prestige cable. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm a little worried about that. That being said, Ben Mendelsohn as this character and Cynthia Erivo ca- as that character, I would. I, I would watch them as you say do anything. Um, I. I think I said in every single episode still watching me did that i'd watch ben Mendelssohn read the phone book and i would so you know if hbo yeah. has him under contract and wants to use him some more you know and it saves him from doing ready player two or whatever <laughs> then that's fine by me <laughs> <laughs>
0: um joanna what has your quarantine doing been like
5: okay so let's talk about this weird psychology um, okay so so a, a couple different studios have decided to put their um their films online. We talked about this last week in sort of more dire circumstances, in terms of like what is to become of movie theaters. And I, I do not want to discount movie theaters again. So please, I'm not saying that, but I'm curious what this psychological, uh, you know, impact is of. Here's this thing that was shiny and new and you you had to leave your house for it, but we're going to give it to you early in your home. Whatever that is, it worked on me because I've been like snapping up all these films that they've been putting up on iTunes. Like, for example, Emma, the new Emma, Onward, uh, the new Pixar But my favorite of those offerings is The Hunt. And The Hunt is a really fascinating story. If if any of you listening have been following, this is a film that was supposed to come out last year. And then was tabled over concerns about the politicized violence and the gun use in it, because it was supposed to come out right around the time of yet another mass shooting. And I can't remember which because we have so many these days. Um, And so it was sort of uh, seen as in poor taste and tabled. And then it came out, it either came out or was supposed to come out um, this last month. And then the coronavirus hit. And so now it's finally online. And I actually saw... I, I don't know. It's sort of, it, the, the premise of it is it's sort of like a Hunger Gamesy. let's pit, uh, quote unquote, deplorable, like rich liberals are hunting, you know, lower class deplorables in a Hunger Games type scenario. That premise was wildly uninteresting to me. I thought it sounded really stupid. And so that's why I, I like never checked out, despite the fact that there are some people that I really respect uh, involved in this film, uh, including the great Damon Lindelof. Then uh, comedian Paul Shear was tweeting about it, and he was like, "You know, the hunt is not at all what I expected." I was like, "Uh oh, what if it's not what I expect either?" <laughs> um, so I rented it, and um, and Betty, It stars Betty Gilpin, who uh, is fantastic. Uh, you might you might know her from Glow. She's an incredible like talent that we all sort of have our eye on. She is the lead, sort of quote unquote deplorable. Uh, it is. Fantastic. It's it, the. I don't think it's trying to make any sort of serious political commentary other than there are assholes and idiots on both sides of this uh, dialogue that we're in uh, in the country. And so then it's just sort of like kind of a fun action-y romp and Betty Gilpin uh, is incredible. Uh, Hilary Swank is also in the film. She's pretty great. And there's just like great action scenes, great fighting scenes uh, for Betty Gilpin. If you are like one of those people who really loves watching like an atomic blonde, like watching Charlize Theron and her various stunt doubles do like incredible fighting work. That's what's going on with Betty Gilpin here. Just really, really good stuff. She's just like continues to dazzle me with like how appealing she is, how much I want her just to see her do more and more and more. So I, I that would be my number one recommendation is check out The Hunt. If you liked, say like Ready or Not, which is this um, horror comedy that came out last year, I, I would really recommend this is sort of like in a similar tone, I would say. Um,
0: Do you, um, as a horror, like, I feel like a lot of horror movies really thrive on the audience experience. Do you feel like it's a good watch from home
5: uh, vibe? Uh, It's more actiony than horror. Um, You know, Ready or Not is a little bit more, like, gory. This is just straight action. So I I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that you're missing that, like, horror theatrical thing, though I would have, I would have liked to have seen this in the theater, for sure. But I think you and I... Katie, you're the kind of Freddy Cats who like wait until Hereditary is streaming at home and then watch it with all the lights on and the windows, uh, you know, the blinds up because we're Freddy Cats. Oh, I'll so. do you one better.
0: I read the Wikipedia summary of Hereditary <laughs> so that I wouldn't be too scared and then chickened out anyway. I still haven't seen Hereditary. Uh-
5: <laughs> So that's, you know, I know that that about you and I know that about myself. So like, but I have seen horror movies and it, like I have, you know, I went to go see the the new It in the both of them in the theater and I had a fun time jump scaring with everyone. So, you know, it's I get it. I get that communal. Um, it's it's true for horror It's true for comedy. Those are two things you really do want to see in a crowd.
0: And you did the same thing for Onward too, right? You were you're you're an early adopter now of the Pixar movie that is available on streaming.
5: Uh, I I just feel you know if if a lot of Pixar's are A or A plus, onward is probably like a solid B plus for me. Like I don't think it's one of their top tier uh, films. But if you're at home and you want to watch something like it's, it's charming uh it made me tear up once it didn't make me like weep openly which is what pixar usually does so like it was one one gentle tear up uh watching this uh it lifts pretty heavily like pretty heavily from indiana jones so if you want like pixar wow. does indiana jones uh this you know it's it's supposed to be pixar does like a DD campaign but really it's like pixar doing indiana jones uh with tom holland and chris pratt and daddy issues and weekend at Bernie. so like that's not that's a that's a that's a nice little stew that's of a, things. It's a, it's a so, lot a lot of things going on there a lo- <laughs> yeah Here's- a lot of going on
0: the thing with Onward and with Trolls World Tour, which I believe is coming in a week or two, is as one of those parents stuck at home with kids to entertain, like, Disney Plus is kind of the worst thing working against this. Like, why would I watch Onward when all of the actual great Pixar movies are, like, right there? Uh, I mean, we've watched right. *Wally* a lot. Presumably at some point I'll get sick of watching *Wally*, But uh, I just, I don't feel that incentivized. There's also, like, eight seasons of the Trolls TV show on Netflix. Richard, I know you are know of it because you've been making a lot of money off of it. Of course, um, yeah. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> there's a lot of trolls content out there. I, I'm i curious. I don't know that we'll ever know how well this experiment has gone or that anyone really wants to talk about it because it's such an aberration. But, uh, you know, the movies that you can rent for 20 bucks at home that like if you're trying to entertain your kids when there's already so much stuff out there, you know, depending on the age of the kids, it feels like not that big of uh, that good an option.
5: Yeah, that's that's fair. Um, The the price point I, you know, is something uh, worth mentioning. Um, the last new release that I saw at home was the new Emma from um, Autumn to Wild uh, directed uh, with Anna Taylor-Joy, um, one of my uh, favorite people in the world. This was a miss for me oh, <laughs> as, no. a, as, as a, as a die in the world Jane Austen nerd. I feel like it just doesn't get... Okay, so let's say you've never seen an adaptation of Emma, and there's a lot of good adaptations. You could have seen the, like, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow version. There's a Romola Gary version. There's a Kate Beckinsale version. Like, there's a lot of Emma versions that you might have seen over the years. And there's
4: or, Clueless and Clueless. exactly.
5: Exactly. Or maybe you just saw Clueless. Uh, not just. Maybe you saw Clueless, which is a great Emma adaptation with with the great Alicia Silverstone. The important part of Emma is that Emma is such like a, an asshole sometimes in the story that she has to be like really intensely lovable uh, for you to be on this journey with her. And this film forgets to do that. And so then you're just watching a bunch of mean people be kind of mean to each other in beautiful costumes, uh, I must admit. So uh, to me, it's one of those literary adaptations that I feel like doesn't understand. And, uh, the source material accurately and what it does get right is like the beautiful costumes and uh, you know Bill Nye doing like a classic Bill Nye performance but it's wildly incorrect for the character that he's playing you know and so it's fine so if you don't care about the source material uh, and you just want to see Anna Taylor Joy and Johnny the great Johnny Flynn and Bill Nye and all in these beautiful costumes watch Emma if you do then watch another version of Emma or watch Clueless because it's a great film so do that
0: I feel like between this and Little Women, it's been a rough go for you with uh, literary adaptations, which seem like they would be so up your
3: alley.
5: I need to care less about the source material, I think, is what I'm <laughs> finding.
3: <laughs> this year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to Butcher Butcher ButcherBox is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. two pounds of ground beef and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence. <laughs>
0: Okay, now we are going to welcome back to the podcast uh, Karina Longworth, who um, has released, I think, the most informative thing for me about the history of what Hollywood might do in the case of a pandemic. Um, Karina, thank you for hopping on the phone with us. Sure. Thanks for wanting me to. <laughs> um, I mean, I was so glad to see that you had released a mini episode of Not You Must Remember This, just kind of a mini podcast, um, both because I'm a fan of the show and because I have definitely had the question, like, what can the 1918 flu teach us about any of this? And you did it from the Hollywood perspective. Um And what it seemed to me that you kind of learned is that Hollywood, either because it wasn't as big an industry as it is now or because they had a different attitude, like did not take it nearly as seriously the first time around, even though there was so much like death and destruction and closure around them. Like the tone of the press coverage that you pulled up from what you had in the episode seemed kind of wild to me. Did, Did it strike you that way too?
6: It did compared to today, but I also think we have to realize that in most newspapers across the country in in the 19 teens, Hollywood was considered a novelty. It was considered like literally entertainment journalism, and and nobody in most cities was taking the business seriously as a business. And so that's why a lot of the the nationwide newspaper coverage was, you know, saying that the stars were on vacation rather than in quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, but then even there, some of that tone, especially as the crisis wore on, got into um, the trade papers like um, the the movie theater trade papers and and variety you know um, while at the same time variety was keeping kind of a, a running tally of, of of sicknesses and deaths they would also kind of mock things like um, you know not mock but like they if a movie star you know went to go visit a hospital and defiantly didn't wear a mask that was treated as a good thing
0: that's so insane. <laughs> Is this like is there something about the like Hollywood being kind of like a wild west like town full of outcasts to this like was that kind of the general attitude toward Hollywood then it was like all these weirdos who would run off to the coast and, and weren't having respectable careers
6: Yeah certainly in terms of the film industry that was actually situated in Los Angeles because you have to remember that about half of it was still on the east coast um in New Jersey and in and in Queens So um, that was considered to be closer to the center of world finance. And certainly, I mean, not quite by 1918. It was sort of a few years later, but the industry was kind of on the road to having it be like the creative types in one place, mostly Los Angeles, and the money people, the corporate offices in New York. Um, And so I do think there was a sense, at least in the press coverage, that the producers and the stars who were based in new york were a little bit more serious and then the people out on the west coast were yeah like you know sort of fly by night
0: like possible crooks and (laughs) cowboys (laughs) probable crooks, honestly (laughs) yeah from the research that you've done on this period of hollywood like had you ever encountered stories about how the flu affected it or did you have to really dig to find any of this in in the historical accounting of this time
6: I had encountered stories um, usually in passing. You know, you read about D.W. Griffith, and, you know, there will be a story about how he still insisted that they continue rehearsing Broken Blossoms, even though uh, it was clear that the flu was shutting everything down, and how he, like Lillian Gish, was sick, but he still made her rehearse, albeit wearing a mask. So there's like, I've always read scattered stories, but I felt like the reason why I wanted to do this mini podcast was because I didn't understand how it all fit together. And I had heard that there had been this, um, movie going, uh, film industry economic depression because of the flu, but I didn't really know how it broke down. And so that's why I went to, I went digging to try to find the answers.
0: Richard and Joanna, I'll leave you guys room to jump in.
1: Well, I was going to ask you, Karina, um, and this might sound like a very, uh, trite Pollyanna question, but did anything about your research make you feel like hopeful about what we're currently experiencing in terms of like the industry's resilience or or anything like that? I mean, how does it speak to this current situation um, to your mind?
6: Hopeful would be a stretch. but (laughs) I I figured. um, Yeah. You know, I mean, one thing I can say about the response in 1918 is that movie theaters were closed a lot quicker. The first cases were... um, it, the first cases in Los Angeles and on the East Coast were identified within the month of September. Um, in Boston, it was earlier in the month. And then in Los Angeles, it was later in the month. Movie theaters closed pretty much nationwide by the second week of October. So that is a lot faster than we acted to start closing public spaces during this epidemic, pandemic, Um and then the way that it kind of resolved at least in terms of film exhibition was that everything became more corporate <laughs> so that's not i mean you know i i'm really concerned about independent theaters and even smaller chains like the Alamo Draft House being able to survive this and so i hope the answer is not that the movie studios get back into the exhibition business which is what happened um around 1919 1920 is that paramount went around buying up um movie theaters that were struggling to get back on their feet, or they would build giant movie palaces across the street from those movie theaters, um, which essentially put the small theaters out of business. So, um, you know, in the regulatory climate we live in with our current president, I don't think that there would be anything stopping movie theaters, uh, movie studios from having those kinds of monopolies again. So that's not great. (laughs) Um, You know, but I guess you have to balance it. Like back then, nobody cared. Um, It just it felt like a good thing because movie theaters were not only opening again, but they were opening bigger and better than ever before. Um, But I think we're in a situation now with the, the, you know, overall climate of movie going where we really need a balance. We really need there to be multiplexes. And we need places that will still show repertory film that will still show independent film, the kinds of films that, you know, kind of keep the art of cinema going and not just the commerce of cinema going.
0: The thing that I wonder is not that the studios would go back into exhibition, but that they would see no money in it and kind of stop their cooperation with the AMCs and regals of the world at all and like lean all the way more into their streaming services, which we're all kind of in the process of going now anyway. It it, it makes me wonder if the studios will turn even turn more away from exhibition to try to figure out another way around it.
6: Well, I have two things to say about that. First of all, I don't know if you guys have seen, I haven't seen any numbers from this past weekend of like the universal um, releases on VOD. Have you guys seen any numbers? I don't even know if they'll release them. Right. So we don't know if that's working. Yeah. We'll have to see if that's working. The other thing is that It might seem attractive to somebody like Universal to get out of the theatrical business. But then look at somebody like Netflix, which has these relationships with filmmakers. Like, very specifically, they seek out people that they consider to be brand name filmmakers. They know that all of those guys want their movies, and women, want their movies shown in movie theaters. Yeah. They don't want them to just go straight to VOD. So Netflix is going around buying movie theaters. So... You know, I don't know how it's going to shake out. I mean, right. Obviously, Netflix, it, like economically is a huge force um, on par with any of the studios at this point. Yeah.
1: Is there anything, Karina, that struck you um, beyond just the kind of like studios buying up theaters afterward that like the 1918 flu epidemic like derailed? Is there a kind of an alternate history of Hollywood um, had this whole thing not happened that you kind of could located um, in your research?
6: Hmm, that's interesting. I don't I don't know that I would say that there was, um, you know, certainly like that a lot of people got sick in Hollywood, but most of them recovered. Um, you know, not thank God, like Frank Capra recovered, you know, <laughs> but um, there was one star, um, Harold Lockwood, who did die of the flu. Um, maybe we would know him for something other than having died of the flu right. <laughs> today right. Right. if that hadn't happened. But I mean, I think that Actually, movie production got back to normal pretty fast. Um, I talk about it in the in the little episode, but you know, the, again, like in this sort of mocking press coverage, there was coverage of how Thomas Ince, who was a, a producer who owned his own studio, he like went back into production really fast as soon as the restrictions were lifted, and the restrictions were only about four weeks, I think. And so when they but when they went back into production, he insisted that everybody wear masks at his studio. And this was widely mocked in the press. Oh, wow. So (laughs) maybe there would be
5: an alternate version if he hadn't made everybody wear
0: masks. Right.
5: (laughs) uh, You know, you mentioned this uh, already a little bit, but I am really curious to know what comes out artistically both from that period and, and this period we're in, in terms of like, what stories are we going to get uh, that are inspired by this extraordinary time we're all living through together?
6: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's probably a temptation amongst a lot of writers and filmmakers to, you know, try to talk about this literally, which I, right. I think is probably not the best idea. <laughs> right,
5: um,
6: right. I, you know, I hope that, like a great documentarian is on the case Um but in terms of, of fiction film, I think probably what we need is something that deals with the feelings that we're feeling like isolation and loneliness and fear without it necessarily being in the setting of a pandemic.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're in L.A. We're not like how how are things in L.A. with everything shut down? Like, is it the same as everything or do you, do you feel like you have a sense of like how Hollywood specifically is, is coping right now?
6: Well, first of all, I'll say that my life is not that different because I usually work at home anyway. Same. <laughs> so I am um, and usually like the place I go to the two places I go to are outside to exercise and to the grocery store that on like an average workday. So my life is not that different right now, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but um, I think, you know, just talking to people, people are definitely frustrated and trying to figure out what they can do to. Um, help the economic bottom lines of the people who are more vulnerable in the industry, such as below the line workers, um, you know, rarely working actors, and then the exhibition industry as well. So I think people who are financially comfortable are trying to, to do what they can to help people who are less financially comfortable. And then I also think that to some extent, business is still going on because you can still write, you can still develop. And if you're not thinking about the future, then you're going to just kind of be caught unawares, you know, when things do get back to normal. So I do think that people are still working on things. They just can't shoot things.
0: Yeah, I guess I keep thinking about the writer's strike as a as a weird analog to this, but like somewhat similar in terms of it breaking everything down. But the whole thing with the writer strike is no one could write. Um, so the like the method of production slowed down. So I, I like the idea of everyone coming out of this quarantine with a script or two. <laughs> Maybe that's too high a bar to set for anybody.
6: Well, also, I mean, I hope that that's the case. I hope that people are ready to just hit the ground running. But I also think that psychically, it's a really tough time. It's a hard time to focus. I mean, you know, I'm I'm having some issues with my own research, just needing to do these interviews and getting people to focus on talking about the past rather than talking about the present. And then, you know, I think that some filmmakers I know are having trouble focusing on on anything but the news, really. So... Hopefully, I you know, I just I feel like we have this idea that we're all going to be so bored during this time, but I don't feel like the boredom has set in because the anxiety is still so high.
5: Yeah. Karina, are you watching anything uh, in this quarantine time that you want to share with us? Yeah, you know, weirdly, one of the last movies that
6: uh, we went to see in a movie theater was part of fil- uh, Noir City, the Film Noir film festival. And they did an evening with David Mamet and showed House of Games. And so I it kind of made me realize that I haven't seen a lot of David Mamet films and my husband's really, really into his filmography. So we watched um, the movie that Mamet made right after House of Games, which is called Things Change with Joe Mantegna and uh, Donna Amici. Which I highly recommend. And then last night we watched The Spanish Prisoner, which is also super
5: great. Oh, love that. I love that movie.
6: Yeah. So these uh, movies are I mean, they're obviously like beautifully written films and, and kind of classics of their genre, but it's also they're also kind of escapist right now, you know. So they feel I'm a
5: good.
6: big I'm a big red
0: belt fan. Is that on your list? It's on our list to watch, yeah. I haven't seen it. Excellent. Cool. Now I have two Now I have movies to add to my list. Um, yeah,
1: from the Spanish flu to the Spanish prisoner.
0: <laughs> thank you, Richard. Um, all right. Well, K- Karina, I hope you uh, stay he- healthy and indoors and um, a little bit productive while we all watch the news. And um, any more bonus episodes you want to release, uh, we'll take them. So thank you.
6: Okay. Cool. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks.
5: <laughs> Thanks, Karina. Bye. Bye. So now we're going to
0: welcome David Ehrlich, friend to me, friend to Joanna, friend to all, uh, friend of the internet. Um, and uh, David, you've brought a special guest with you, right? Um,
2: yeah. uh, you might have just heard him uh, hop in there and try to get a word in before uh, you formally introduced him. But that is my son, Asa. It's Asa. Today It's his four-month birthday. Is that a... Is that really the right way of describing it, yeah. I guess? He's been yeah. alive for four yeah. months, as of um, today.
0: How, um, how does Asa feel about the future recovering. of theatrical exhibition um, after the coronavirus? I assume he has opinions.
2: Well, it's hard to tell because he has smiled more in the last two weeks than he ever has before. So <laughs> it feels like something is a little bit misaligned between him and the, and the outside universe. I think he doesn't have really um, No, Asa does not read the news, and he does have a tendency to cry whenever I play it on television, um, which means it's a time of the day that I'm doing something, which is uh, his favorite time to cry. Uh, But um, yeah, Asa Asa is the only person I know right now, full stop, who uh, seems pretty chill about just about everything that's happening, theatrical windows included.
0: (laughs) Uh, So David, we brought you on uh, both because we need new voices in this podcast, because uh, we're running out of quarantine content to talk about. uh, But also in this episode, we're talking to Korea Longworth who did a special emergency mini-sode about the 1918 flu and how movie theaters are covered from that and express, some skepticism that uh, current movie theaters would be able to do the same. And I thought it was a particularly interesting contrast with your piece that you wrote for IndieWire last week, where you basically said, everyone is says that trolls world tour going on VOD is the death knell for movie theaters. And they are idiots. And I'm
4: I'm curious about where you get your confidence.
2: Um, Well, I get my confidence from the magical place I like to call uh, willful naivete, uh, (laughs) which is uh, the delusional optimism I need to uh, get out of bed in every capacity, not just limited for movie theaters, but about so many things right now. Um, But, no, I mean, I think... Uh, you know, Karina is is very smart about this, and I'm sure found very acute parallels between what happened in 1918 and what might happen in the future um, of our current pandemic. Uh, and I know that all of my my thoughts, my hopes, my vision of what might happen in the future of theatrical exhibition are slightly tinged with delusion, naivete. Um, it's really what I, I want to see happening. There are theoretical. Truths that I believe in that may not match up or be supported by the financial realities um, that that come from reopening uh, movie theaters. But my take was essentially twofold, um, and it, neither fold is all that complicated. The first is simply that it behooves the studios to help theatrical exhibition thrive. The the studios um, were smart, Universal included, to pivot some of their their most recent content uh, to. VOD. I mean, Trolls World Tour, what, what sort of triggered that whole article was people treating Trolls World Tour as if it were like a movie that mattered in any real sense, as if it, like <laughs> they were going to cover it. And This is the only way any of the people who wrote the kind of articles that, that tick me off were ever going to write about Trolls World Tour. I mean, and, and honestly, I put it in the same camp as I do Disney putting Frozen 2 on Disney+, Plus, which is, it's like a public health service to parents across the country who are desperately in need of new content to show their children. And I think that uh, it really doesn't matter if trolls had opened the theaters or just giving that step, really just a quirk of timing. I mean, Frozen 2, which was another movie that people look to as a sort of like watershed moment for VOD. Disney Plus shifting it over, um, or sorry, Disney shifting over to VOD faster to Disney Plus. Um, That movie had already made $1.4 billion to the box office. I mean, uh, its box office history had sort of been written. So you look at the financials of how studios work, how the theatrical market keeps the studios in business, uh, and, and you see this playing out in Warner Brothers and other studios postponing their big upcoming titles rather than rushing them onto VOD. They, they need the uh, the ticket sales. They need everything that comes with that to make them whole and make a profit. And, and the VOD, the $20 they can get from um, having limited rentals right away on uh, your home video system are not nearly enough to offset that. Um, and I think it was very smart of Universal to put The Invisible Man and uh, and Warner Brothers to put Birds of Prey um, and and Focus, you know, owned by Universal, put Emma. Uh, these are movies that were cut off at the knees. I mean, they were in theaters just for a matter of minutes and uh, had not gotten anywhere close to finishing out their their first run uh, lifespan. And this was really a desperate measure to, to salvage what they could from those movies, particularly because those movies were doing well, especially in the case of The Invisible Man. Uh, and they had to do what they had to do. But um, I don't think that it's going to change the paradigm in any meaningful way when theaters are open again. And the other, just to be quick and stop monologuing, the other side of this is uh, my more abstract belief that I've always maintained, um, that not only do people love going to the movies, and this is something we see borne out whenever there are new financial opportunities and incentives like movie MoviePass. People love going to the movies, even if going to the movies is often a miserable experience. You know, I I do hope that when theaters reopen, the AMCs and regals of the world take it upon themselves to coax people back in, not just, you know, proudly being there, but uh, uh, actually improving their services. But um, the other side of it is that theatrical exhibition, not without problems, has survived during the age of streaming. It has survived a time when viewers, particularly younger viewers, feel entitled to this sort of... uh, access is everything culture uh torrenting um you know people are always in, as a film critic people are always in my mentions asking me to leak movies they know i've watched on a screener uh, i mean there is this constant uh, feeling and you see it now even also with the fomo of people who live in second city markets who don't really understand the economics of platform releasing and uh, want movies now and don't want to lag behind to expand the conversation you know like and and i love what streaming makes possible. I love the access that it gives to so many different people. There's so many places where, unfortunately, there aren't movie theaters and content, great films in particular, need to be seen um, often, especially by those people. And so I love that both media can can exist um, simultaneously but i think the last 10 years has showed that they can and the very predatory sort of media punditry that wants you to think that it's a war uh, between one side and the other a war that the will inevitably lose because the a lot of these people make they're they're living on betting on the future um not I don't mean to be as cynical about that as it sounds. I just think that there is a sort of inbred futurism to uh, that line of work. Um, yeah, I know, I've talked too long. Uh, but the um, um, the, yeah, I do think that, they are compatible. People want movie theaters to exist. The biggest roadblock of course right now is simply a lot of these places going out of business during the pandemic. I think as, as the national association of theater owners has uh, begged publicly and hopefully with some positive reception, uh, they do need a bailout in some way. Um, the, we do need to continue supporting independent theaters strongly give to the, the theater funds in, in New York in particular, the, the cinema worker solidarity fund, if you can, um, So if the theaters are there, if you build it, if you are able to reopen it, they will come.
5: I I was just wondering if you think that there's a distinction between how the multiplexes will bounce back versus some of these more boutique like the Alamo or some of the other boutique uh, experiences. Because it seems like theaters are already trying to take two different approaches to the theatrical experience, right? There's the like multiplex, same as it ever was, and then there's this like – Come, no talking. Have a beer. Have some food. Like, uh, lean into the experience of it all. And so, I'm wondering if you if you think that those two operations would have different reactions to this pandemic.
2: I mean, I think you know we're we're talking about a future where you know hopefully not only will the movie theaters be open, but people will actually be receptive to going out to them or anywhere else. I mean, I don't know. Nobody knows right now uh, how life will get back to normal. I mean, I think life has to get a lot more surreal before we even bend around that curve and start coming back to uh, any kind of normal that we knew. So, But, you know, in this imagined scenario where people are comfortable with the idea of sitting close to another human being, a stranger in a theater, yeah, I think... I think at first it won't really matter. I think that people will just be so happy to go to the movies. I think that the, the multiplexes will serve the backlog of studio titles that were postponed, um, while the people who were really looking forward to First Cow and Saint Maud um will flock to the art houses. Um I don't know if it'll cause any more of a schism between your draft houses and your regals. I think uh, I think You know, as long as these theaters are open, and I think especially about, like, the, you know, the places that are a lot smaller than the draft houses, just like the the one-off art houses um, Mm -hmm. across the country, like, as long as they are able to reopen, I think people will be very happy to go there and the seats will be full as they would be at the AMC 25 in Times Square. Um, I, I think, you know, it's just a matter of of keeping the lights on or keeping the lights on doesn't really work in this equation in the building where people are going to watch with the lights off. But you know what I mean? Uh, they It's about co- you know, keeping, the, keeping the rent paid.
0: Um, do you guys want to hear? So I just, oh, I,
2: yeah. I uh, do you no, want to no, hear my done, theory
0: yeah. for what's going to happen. Uh, the like what will save movie going. Uh, in the Heights is now officially delayed and from its intended late June release. Whenever it becomes okay to go to the movies again, they're going to release In the Heights is going to make a billion dollars uh, and in America alone. And uh, we'll be fine because that I I feel like we need the movie. To like get us all wanting to actually be in a theater again, and honestly, it's, it's a weird thing to say. Like, I wish that Avengers End Game was out this year because like that would be the one that would get everyone to go. But in the well, absence of that, I think like, in the high school theaters,
2: yeah. well, we could do what the uh, what the Chinese movie theaters did when they reopened and just play Green Book. Is that what we uh, <laughs> do? <the> <laughs> um, but no, I, I hear what you're saying, and it's funny because the conversation I think last year was looking forward to 2020. It seemed like there were fewer big ticket movies than there had been in 2019 when we had star wars and avengers and so on um and captain marvel and all the rest and now if we're just condensing it all into what might be like a three or four month window it's going to be just an absolute overload of exciting content that people are looking forward to see i think you're probably right about in the heights which was going to be a massive hit anyway um i'm just and i think will be really celebratory when people get a chance to see it together but i just wonder if um the messaging that's coming from from governments and the eagerness to reopen businesses won't cause I mean obviously would cause any of Trump's messaging, whatever. We don't need to go there will cause so much more harm than good. But I think in terms specifically of movie theaters I think in order for that business model to begin working again, you need to have a community wide confidence that we can go there and escape into this entertainment and not worry about the person who's sniffling or coughing uh, in the row next to you. And I hate to say, I hope they don't open until we have it all clear. Cause at the same time, I want these places to start making money again as soon as they can. But I think it would be disastrous to have any sort of half measure and had this sort of like tainted industry where people will feel unsafe in movie theaters for a while um it wouldn't be the first time but this would be in a different way
0: that sucks it sucks that people will feel unsafe in movie theaters like of course they will i wouldn't i don't want to go to movie theater right now but i hate that that's <laughs> continuing to happen um okay i we, mean
2: i yeah, think right. sorry just like the very simple thing the very simple thing my vision for how this works is it could be yeah. exactly what they do in china which is just to have people taking temperatures at the door. Um, and I think that it, this is true, not just a movie theaters, or really any place where people would be gathering. I think if they were just like, we're, we're open, um, we're not going to, I think we'll move fever inside. I, I get that works. You have to have that everywhere because otherwise you're letting asymptomatic people who may have the virus in. But if you have that everywhere, then you are doing a good job of isolating people who um, do have the virus and uh, we can go from there. Anyway, I'm uh, this has been Dr. Fauci's movie hour. Uh, I really know what
4: I'm talking about.
5: Well, I was, I was gonna say a friend of mine works for Apple, they were, they're all working from home right now, they were instructed to come to campus and pick up their desk chairs, because they will be at home for a while. So they were told to come pick up their desk chairs. And Apple scanned all of took all of their temperatures going in uh, to campus, you weren't allowed on campus. um, If you didn't have the right temperature. So it's already in place somewhere, you know?
2: To like take the desk chairs onto the lawn and like tag them by name <laughs> and, <laughs> and have people come and get them. Whatever.
5: Or like, or like, drone lift them to their employees' houses in the Bay Area. Maybe. I've
2: been thinking so much about how awful it would be for someone under quarantine to drop their iPhone right now and break the screen because uh, there's basically nowhere you can get it fixed.
5: I cracked What's my that?
2: screen again
0: um, in a minor way. Um, like I can deal with it, but it's made my selfie camera like weird and it's. Just, I'm
5: just with mm. the man. Your quarantine selfies, Katie, what will you do? <laughs> it's like
0: the, like the dumbest <laughs> version of that Twilight Zone episode where I broke my selfie, selfie camera. Um, Wait,
2: so where did you guys uh, I, I look forward to listening to Karina's segment but where did you guys end up falling in terms of what you felt at this point point? and I, I really can't stress every time I talk about this virus in any capacity that the future seems so unclear to, to everyone and I'm very skeptical of anyone who really claims to know what's going to happen but your yeah. best guess is as to uh, how Karina this is going to go. I think how do you feel? too
0: smart to try to make a prediction. Um, and uh, we all just follow her lead and try to, in all things. Um, I don't know. Like, my hope is that everyone will come back and fly to a movie theater. But I'm, I've am i often been persuaded by the argument that at some point the movies will become like opera or live theater and just become a niche thing uh, that most people don't do. Um, and I'm yeah. I'm having a hard time getting out of that idea.
5: I also feel that way, um, but I got in trouble last week on the podcast for saying something similar to that. So,
2: <laughs> Well, my only take on that, and that's an argument that I, I think, you know, in the longest timeline have made, but uh, I also think that movies are twenty dollars which is probably more expensive than they should be and uh opera is i think the last time i went to the opera for free on somebody else's tickets they were like three hundred and fifty dollars and i think that we need some sort of public spectacle where people can come and congregate for less than the price of a ticket to madison square garden or the met in the case of opera um so uh, i hope that movies are able to survive on that strength alone of course you get to a point where like the average family can't afford to go To a movie either with anything that entails and that's a different problem but uh i hope you're all wrong and that i'm right i suspect as in most cases that is not what is going to (laughs) happen but um who knows fingers crossed
5: I think it just it's going to have to do with I mean, we we brought this up this week, uh, Katie, when you brought up the idea of horror, horror and comedy like are always preferable to watch in a crowd. So like no matter where you are, but like going my experience of going to like an AMC, like a multiplex AMC versus a place like the Alamo is night and day. And I find the AMC so unpleasant. And uh, often, and the Alamo is so pleasant. And so, you know, if you're catering to me and my tastes, we're going to see more of that, like, sort of, um, you know, limousine experience of the Alamo versus what you get the AMC. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know if the world's going to cater to me in the long run. We'll see. We'll see. You yeah. know,
2: AMCs will definitely have to do something to lure back audiences. But I don't think, unfortunately, because I agree with everything you just said about, you know, what I enjoy about going to the movies. But, I don't think they're going to actually make the experience better as a draw. I think what they would probably be more likely to do is extend people free trial subscriptions to their A-list service um, and have people back on a subscription-based service for a little while and get them going to the movies again and then that habit. But I, I don't – AMC has never apparently – this is true of Regal also – really felt any pressure to – make better the experience of going to the movies they won't even mask the fucking screens so which is an, an outrage to me that burns every time i have to go to one of them but yeah so i, I unfortunately don't know if it's going to work out for us in that sense but anyone back into the movie theaters in any capacity will be a good thing as far as i'm concerned
0: yeah okay david thank you uh, asa thank you um we'll bring you back, <laughs> a few, we'll bring you back in a few months so you can we can figure out if you were right uh
2: i probably won't be but <laughs> we'll find out <laughs>
0: Okay, Richard, it's your turn. Uh, You've been reviewing TV. uh, So you've been actually like watching things productively for work. Um, Anything, uh, anything good?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's been some good stuff. I just wanted to to kind of um, add on to Joanna's um, The Hunt endorsement, which I haven't seen yet. But um, if you see the movie and you really like uh, Betty Gilpin in it, go on YouTube and find her talk show appearances over the past few years since she's been on GLOW. She's like one of the best late night talk show guests I've seen in years. Um, She's just like really, really, really funny. So I highly recommend, um, you know, if you want to start building your Betty Gilpin fandom.
0: And she wrote a piece for us, too, for VF.com about the experience of, uh, of The Hunt and watching it get delayed endlessly. Yeah, so she's, she's, she's yeah. pretty incredible.
1: We are all in on, on, on Team Gilpin. <laughs> um, but yes, I have, you know, one of the sort of funny things about the malleability of my role as <clears throat> chief critic is that I can kind of pivot <laughs> between film and TV. And obviously right now TV and streaming stuff is where the new stuff is sort of arriving. So... So I've actually been pretty busy um, during these um, very strange times, which is a a luxury, you know, a lot of people are not. So I've been glad to have a lot to focus on. Um, And I would say the big thing, the biggest thing that I've reviewed thus far... that seemed to really take hold when it premiered um, last Friday or on Netflix was Tiger King, which is the kind of new true crimey, you know, seven part really, you know, just gets really granular about this kind of strange sect of America. Um, in this case, people who are obsessed with big cats and other exotic animals. And I just thought, I thought it was really compelling in a way that a lot of true crime of over the years, probably, you know, everything's post-serial and even halfway through serial, I kind of stopped liking it. Um, I feel like a lot of true crime has been churned out. It's kind of cheaply done. It's a little exploitative. It's a little bit glib about the fact that someone got really injured or died or whatever the, the, the story may be. Um, but I feel like this one is handled pretty sensitively while also giving you the goods in terms of like every, you know, 10 minutes, some insane new revelation is made and and it just keeps going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. And um, yeah, so I thought it was fascinating.
0: Yeah, I um I wanted to like, put myself into it, because I you in your review, you said it was gonna be the things that people were assessing over. And I just, I w- didn't want to quarantine myself with a bunch of trashy, scary people. <laughs> but maybe the insanity of their story should be enough to drag me back in. <laughs>
1: well yeah because i think the the, the you know while they're the, pretty much everyone in the documentary has done bad things so no one is by any means a hero but they're all treated at least with a modicum of hum, you know humanely like you know they are, they are quite unlike they treat their animals um you know so i think that it, it it's not a completely depressing slog through you know these miserable horrible lives like it, it there are moments of levity there are moments of Kind of sweetness, weirdly, um, and I think it's it's a very kind of holistically American portrait, of, you know, of, of of these people, particularly this guy called who calls himself Joe Exotic, who owns this or owned this um, sort of Tiger Park Preserve theme, you know, amusement park kind of thing uh, in Oklahoma, uh, and before uh, a lot of v- various calamity befell him um, and people around him. Um, So I understand your, your wariness, but, um, I, I think, you know, I am all, I share that wariness about most of the things like this, but I think this one is, is a rare outlier in that it, it, it does things thoughtfully rather than sensationalistically.
4: Well, I watched that, um, Netflix, like auto teaser or whatever it is that just comes on automatically when you're hovering on something and like literally immediately there's a guy with his arm bitten off by a tiger (laughs) And I was like, I don't know if I can handle this right now.
1: Yeah. But you're
4: saying... You're saying hang in, there. hang
1: in there because and th- that happens pretty early. Um, uh, the, the The park employees aren't being bitten off, but they return to the park and you know. But it, it's it. What What the show is really about is not the kind of gore of the and the danger of these animals. It's about the danger of the people, and and, and people's obsessions and people's feuds and business rivalries. It's about capitalism. It's about politics. It's about queer loneliness. It's about a missing person's case that is so obvious in, ter- in terms of where the person went. You can't believe that it never got solved. Um it's 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 just it contains so much and I think that in in a time when uh you know we're looking for longer distractions, you know, a half hour comedy is not necessarily going to scratch the itch uh, uh the, right now. Um you know, you can just dive into this thing for about 7 hours and really feel like you've almost like you've read a really, you know, hefty novel. You uh, could also read during this, by the way. We could all be reading. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? <laughs> yes.
0: You
6: mean
1: not?
0: Wait, I read, <laughs> I read, I read Twitter. Yeah. That's, that's not reading?
1: Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, so in addition to that, kind of the, the, the new stuff, I also reviewed season three of Ozark, in which Laura Linney is amazing, despite some other kind of narrative problems. That's also on Netflix. Um, but I've taken the opportunity to do kind of do two things during this. One is I finally after my sister getting on my case and lots of other people getting on my case about it, I finally subscribed to the Criterion channel um, and have been enjoying their selection of, you know, like very lauded art films, period stuff, or not period stuff, you know, stuff from before 1975 or whatever. Um, and and the, the kind of two notable ones i watched thus far were The Last Picture Show, the Peter Bogdanovich movie, mm-hmm. where you see a very sexy young um, Jeff Bridges, but also, you know, Sybil Shepard and uh, Ellen Burstyn and Cloris Leachman and an Oscar-winning role. She's incredible. You really see why she won the Oscar. The movie itself, which was kind of a scandal at the time, because it's very, you know, it was made in the early 70s, but it's about the early 50s. So, And it's imagining teenagers in the early 50s, which we're used to seeing, you know, sock hops and all that stuff. But, in, you know, this is about like sex and, and all that kind of stuff that, that wasn't shown because of various, you know, haze codes and all that stuff back in the, in, in the day. Now it seems a little tame, but it is an interesting sort of time capsule. Um, And I also watched uh, Noel Coward's film, uh, Brief Encounter, which I'd never seen before. And I think that's from 1945-ish. And that is just extraordinary. It's such a beautiful movie, sad, beautifully acted, especially by Celia Johnson, who's the lead um, and the narrator. Um, So I've been really digging Criterion. And then I've also been doing kind of synchronized viewings with friends um, where we just kind of like text or slack or whatever while while having press play on the uh, the same movie at the same time. Um, And as we record tonight, we're going to do the... um, Uh, you know the seminal biopic um, Diana starring Naomi Watts (laughs) because (laughs) two of us were supposed to see the Diana musical this week and obviously we're not seeing that on Broadway because everything's closed so we said okay well here's the next worst thing Um, so I've never seen it but I'm excited so I'm just trying to do that communal thing because uh, you know it can be solitary watching all this stuff by myself Katie have
5: you ever seen Brief Encounter? no i've
0: not seen brief encounter you oh it's it, right up your it alley it seems extremely yeah as as i discussed i think <laughs> on twitter and with joanna that my favorite genre is like people who are in love but have to part for some reason at the end and then like tearfully say goodbye to train <laughs> um and I've, I've always known that brief encounter was like in that wheelhouse um but I feel like Criterion Channel for me at, the, at this point where I am chasing children and trying to work would just be like another thing that I feel guilty about not accomplishing. Um, yeah. So Richard, I'll, I admire all of your film viewing and um, wish to achieve such a level someday.
1: Well, I mean, I'm mostly watching YouTube videos, but. You know.
4: <laughs> By the way, I think it's just a service to let people know that With Nail and I is is available on the Criterion Ooh, Channel yes. uh, to stream, which is very unusual. And then uh I am a Criterion Channel kind of junkie myself. I find it very soothing to go watch like weird old things that are very slow. I watched a fair bit of Paris, Texas recently. And like I also feel like you don't need to watch the whole thing of an old movie either, especially if it's a weird old art movie. Just like watch some of it and just be and, transported. And, and know about and, it. And um, Yeah, and just like live in it with it for a little bit. And then um, and and I really recommend if people haven't seen La Ventura um the antonioni uh film that is on criterion and is in just absolutely a masterpiece and and really cool and um and when worth a look there's there's so much great stuff on that it's a it's a great you know what service. i
1: can't recommend which i did i did watch um which i'd seen when i was a kid but had hadn't seen as an adult was the player the robert altman film about um the movie industry and it, while it's still really compelling yeah, it's so compelling and it's full of celebrities, but it, it it one thing that was sad about it is you see all these people pitching these kind of, you know, mid-budget weird dramas or comedies to a major studio and I was watching it being like, well, those days are gone and feeling kind of depressed <laughs> about that. Um but it, it but you know, like I said about um last picture show, it the player is also an interesting time capsule full of famous people.
4: Yeah. It's a uh... Yeah, Tim Robbins is awesome in that. It's and also she, yeah.
5: It's also such a good example of like early '90s fashion, like that. The player, the LA in the player, is just like I don't know. It's a lot of like khaki. I don't know. I love, I love, I love that movie. Yeah,
1: <laughs> there's a scene where Burt Reynolds is like <laughs> at lunch at some place, and he's not the the thrust of the scene, but he's just kind. Of, he's in the foreground, but he's actually kind of background to what's happening, you know, behind him. Um, and I just, just was laughing thinking about Burt Reynolds being like, "What the hell do you want me to do? Am I, do I have lines or not? I'm just talking." Like, <laughs> like I just. Burt Reynolds in an Altman universe is kind of funny. totally. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was me in the fashion When one, one of the few movies I have managed to watch, The Thomas Crown Affair, because uh, it's on HBO. And I had never seen it somehow, um, despite being like right in the pocket of that period of my life where I saw every movie. And Renee Russo's outfits and hair and everything in that movie. Like, she is so beautiful. The movie is super sexy. It's her and Pierce Brosnan. Like, they have sex on a marble staircase, which is horrifying, um, but looks great in its montage. Um, but everything <laughs> she wears in that movie is just like such a mess. Um, and it, and it, it looks it great the... at the time.
1: It had a sexy glider scene before Fifty Shades of Grey had a sexy glider <laughs> yeah, it scene. dude did
0: kind so. of forgot about the glider. There's such a um, so much adventure. There's so much of that movie is like, let's just watch them do something cool in an exotic location for five minutes, even though it's also got like a convoluted art heist plot in the middle of it. Um, I <laughs> and that Bill
1: Conti it. score is incredible. That's
0: yeah, great. Um, I so the, my one like cred for old school like classic film viewing is that. At the encouragement of Dana Stevens on Twitter, who I think is uh, writing a book about Buster Keaton, she has suggested his um, short film One Week as like a good kid option of something. Because like a lot of Buster Keaton movies, they don't have a lot of plot. They have a lot of sight gags. Uh, Really silly stuff happens in them. So I watched it. It's on YouTube. Uh, It's about 20 minutes long. It's the one where he's building a house uh, with his new bride and all kinds of things go horribly wrong. And uh, it was a hit. I had such a good time watching it um, with my children. Even the like baby who barely watches anything paid attention for a while. Um, So I haven't looked to see how much other Buster Keaton might be on youtube but i imagine a fair bit because it's all in the public domain so take that criterion channel i'm just gonna (laughs) watch
5: whatever youtube serves me from classic films I have heard that, that that Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. Keaton maybe even more so because his it's like so physical you know like there's just like train action and all sorts of stuff is is really good kid watching. Yeah, material. I was thinking
0: about That's trying awesome. The General. The, the General's pretty long, yeah. so I don't know if like that one, we might have to watch that that one in pieces. Um the one other thing that I am watching and have just started but I wanted to toss my hat in is I finally watched Cheer After months after everyone else did, it felt like kind of exactly the thing I wanted to be in the mood for in quarantine, like A, watching like people gathering in an indoor space and touching each other and all that stuff its not (laughs) happening anymore. Um, But I just, I like these kids. I like seeing them try so hard for something. Like, it's always, I always like getting into a subculture where, like, you don't know a thing about it, but it means the world to all of the people involved. And of course, with teenagers or, like, I guess they're college students, so maybe early 20s, um, they are so deeply invested in something you didn't know existed 10 minutes ago and like gabby is like a celebrity in their world i'd never heard of her um i've, I've been enjo- i have only like two episodes in so i there's probably lots more to happen but i did remember at our oscar party that jerry was there and like all of the famous people completely lost their minds to see jerry um so i, I just i just want to love jerry like everybody else
1: yeah and watching cheer is interesting because you realize that bring it on 20 whatever years ago like actually did their homework like it, 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 <laughs> oh, I mean, it's so accurate you know um, but I agree yeah That that's um, a really yeah kind of a heartening thing to watch is, is people like competent people doing the work they love you know yeah. uh, and, and and kind of you know succeeding because of that
0: yeah it's kind of like, I've also been uh, catching up on Brooklyn Nine-Nine which um, I've just been behind on and like that's also like a sitcom about in classic Mike Sure fashion like competent people caring about each other and doing work um, and being funny so that's uh, that's what's getting me through it. <laughs> okay, that does it for this week's episode. Uh, again, go to our Twitter feed at Little Gold Men to vote on the movie that we will watch next week. Um, you have a lot of good choices. I really want to see the like Gloria Swanson stands versus the Scorsese stands versus the John Void stands. Let's get a, a real battle going in our uh, Twitter feed. Um, in the meantime, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, including Richard's reviews of uh, Ozark and Tiger King. And Probably lots of other stuff by the time you hear this. Um, follow us on Twitter at LittleGoldMan and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Joanna. Jen this and Richard.
1: Rylaws.
0: And Mike had to run, but he's at Mike underscore Hogan. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs.
1: And this week's award for the best explanation of why it is still, unbelievably, Emmy season goes to Katie Rich.
0: That will always be part of the human condition.